A couple weeks ago, Tim preached through and talking about Jesus first calling Andrew and Peter. And then two weeks ago, he preached through talking about Nathaniel and Philip. And now we're today in talking about Canaan, that Jesus has now come with his disciples and he's now on his journey from Galilee to Galilee. And what I mean by that, and there's going to be an image on the screen to show you guys what this looks like visually. And basically, starting in chapter 2, going on to verse chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus taking this journey, starting in Galilee with his first miracle. And then we're going to see another miracle at the end, showing of his healing of the son of the official. So starting off, we're going to be right up here in Canaan. And Jesus now there, or Cana, he's going on to the miracle to show the sign at the wedding. And then in verse 13, it tells us that he goes up to Capernaum. And then he takes his journey back down to Jerusalem. And then he makes his way back up to Canaan. And as Hunter had read that passage earlier from Isaiah, a lot of times we know the second half of it. It's unto us a child is born. But Matthew attributes that to Jesus beginning his ministry, that this light has shone in this darkness. And so we see this through this time, through these next couple chapters, seeing this light that has come to these Gentiles. And you'll see it with the woman in Samaria as Jesus cleanses the temple and the different miracles and signs that he performs. You're going to see him working, him showing this light into the darkness. So that's going to be for our next couple weeks. So let's get into our passage. Verse 1 and 2 says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So like I was explaining from before, on that third day is referencing, talking about his progression of going from through this week, which like, as he goes into Capernaum, he'll take some time to spend there and relax there, and then he'll head on to Jerusalem. So the passage sets, gives us the setting. And this passage lends itself very well for a narrative that it gives us the setting. And then as we get into verse 3, it tells us the problem. And in verse 9, it tells us the solution. And then in verse 11, it tells us the result. And so it it works very well for us to follow through it and see this progression of this problem that is presented and then working through to see what what is the solution to the problem. So in verse three, it says. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So I guess things have not changed for human beings. Wine running out at a party is always a problem. And so as always. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so as we know, wine running out at a party always is a problem. But in this context, in this situation, it's a little bit different than it might be for us. Because for the bridegroom, for him, he took on the responsibility of providing everything for the wedding. And so for the wine to run out was not only shameful to him, and as I was even reading that, it could even be, bring legal actions. So I'll explain why and what I mean by that. Their process of marriage is, a little, is different from ours. For them, engage, what we would call engagement is betrothal, and that pretty much basically was marriage because to break it off would take a divorce. And so the family could come unto him and say that he did not hold up his end of the agreement because he could not provide. And so there could be legal ramifications for him. This passage shows us that the problem is that the wine ran out, right? So that is our problem. And then as we continue, we see that how did Jesus learn of this problem? It says in verse three, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. We ask the question, why would she be the one to tell him? And we don't know, but we can assume that they knew them. They probably had a close relationship to them because that was the content of their time of a small town. And Mary being able to go to Jesus and tell him that there is no wine. 
we can learn from Mary that when she saw the problem presented before her, her first reaction was to go to Jesus. Let us learn from her that when we have problems and issues in our life, that we go unto Christ to find the solution. And I can imagine Mary was probably thinking about all the wonderful things she had seen of Christ. The angel who prophesied to her that he was to come. Her birthing him as a virgin. And her getting to raise him and see him grow up, never making a mistake. Perfect and sinless. And as she sees all these things, she's probably in awe and wonder and knowing, I see him bringing disciples. Let me come unto him. Let me go to him and tell him of this problem. And also, Joseph probably wasn't alive either. And so Jesus would have taken over the role and responsibility as the leader of the family, as his physical family. And so as she has this problem, she goes to Jesus. And when I first read it, Jesus' response threw me aback. As he says in verse 4, it says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So thankfully God can do that, because I know if I would have did that in my time, I know many of you, I would have got slapped, or I would ask, who do you think you are? So we see that for our sensibilities and our time, that's strong. It just not is our norm. And that's on the surface. But there's a lot more deeper meaning and there is theological implications to this Jesus responding to her in this way. So the first one, him just saying woman is similar to how we would say lady and is not seen as a term of disrespect. And he even uses it later when he is on the cross to tell her John will be her son. So we see that Christ is not being disrespectful. And second, the theological implications is if you've grown up around Catholicism or if you know of the Catholic doctrines, they've elevated Mary up to the level of co-savior. She is seen as being able to reach Jesus in such ways that we are not able to. And she is elevated far beyond what the scriptures have, have bestowed upon her. Yes, God has called her. Yes, God used her in a mighty way. And yes, she will forever be known as the woman whom God used to bring Jesus into this world. But at the end of the day, she is just a woman. She is just a person, and she is nothing above that. And we see here Jesus changing the dynamics of how the relationship is. And so with that, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 48 through 52. And so this is the narrative of when Jesus had left, he had got away from his parents and he's in the temple and they found him. And this is, the, this is how the scene goes. Luke 2, verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So we see the relationship and the response that Jesus gave at that time is very different than the time now. And that time he was submissive to his parents. He submitted unto their authority. But that relationship is beginning to change. And John is showing us his supremacy above her. His authority above her. 
that he's going from submissive to now authority in her life and displaying that by his response to her, asking, what does this have to do with me? Reminding her that it is by the father that he is dictated. His father gives him the commands. He goes by what the father says. And he demonstrates this in us in another reminder of just showing us how Jesus is above Mary. And for us not to fall prey to exalt Mary above where the scriptures have told us she is. And so he continues on. He makes a strange statement. And he says, my hour has not yet come. That makes no sense now. What does that have to do with anything? She asks you about making wine. What do you mean your hour has not come? And on the surface, same thing with before. It may seem strange, but this is a profound statement at this time. And we're going to turn again onto John chapter 13, verse 1, to get an answer of what he means by this hour. And also, if you want to do your own further study into what this my hour means, there's also John chapter 7, verse 6, verse 8, verse 30, in chapter 8, verse 20. All of those references when Jesus says something about his hour. So in John 13, verse 1, it reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we see at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is already speaking ahead about the end of it. He is already looking forward to the cross, looking forward to when he will go back to the Father, when he will die for the sins of worthless people like us. Just imagine that weight upon him. He knows every single day that he walks forward that he is going to die at a time. He's walking past people who are going to betray him. He has all knowledge to know what every single person is going to do, but yet he endured it for us. He endured it so that we may have a way, that we may have salvation. He endured all that for our sake. Praise God that he doesn't tell us everything. Praise God that he does not give us all knowledge how everything would work out because we wouldn't be able to bear. We would try to change the situation. And praise Christ for his example that though he knew every single wrongdoing that was going to be upon him, he still endured them all. And we can praise him for that. And so this, my hour has not yet come. It's a beautiful thing of seeing Jesus knowing his destiny, knowing his purpose, knowing where he was going, and submitting himself unto the will of the Father. So we pick up again in verse 5. This is Mary's response. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She could have responded and said, why would you talk to me like that? I don't really want to do that. Who do you think you are? But she responds in a beautiful way of submission unto him. She realized that he knew better, that he could deal with this, that he was far more capable than she was. And yet again, we can learn from the example of Mary even in our own lives, the hard realization when we go to God, when we ask of things and even sinfully command God to do something and it does not work out the way that we think it should. Instead of fighting that, give, I pray the Lord may give us the heart to submit unto him, submit unto his will that we may be able to say, Lord, your will be done, not ours. 
Let us learn from Mary again of what it means to submit unto the Lord. And though his dictates, though he may say things that may be opposite of the way that we want them to be, let us learn from her. What a beautiful thing that is, Mary submitting unto the Lord. So after this exchange between Mary and Jesus, we pick up in verse 6 and going through verse 8. And it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So the very first thing it starts off talking about is these water jars. And in Mark, you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down if you want to, to look at it. In Mark 7, verses 1 through 5, it explains what these water jars were. And so the Jews had, they had built up this tradition of purification. So they would have these massive jars filled with water and they would wash their hands before they eat. And even in that passage, they rebuked Jesus for his disciples not doing this. So we can see that this is something that they had established and it almost probably became a law to them. That they must do this in this, in this particular way. And Jesus tells these servants to fill these up, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And if my math is right, that's 120 to 180 gallons, which is a massive amount of water. And with that, he tells them to fill it up to the very brim that if anything else were to enter into them, they would overflow. He leaves no room, no question, no doubt that that is full of water. There's nothing else mixed inside of it. And look, what must these servants have been thinking? They didn't know Jesus like that. They didn't know that he was God. They must have been thinking, this guy's weird. What is he trying to tell us to do? Fill it up with water? We're looking for wine. But yet they obeyed him. Let us pause and take a moment. Look how these servants interacted with Jesus. And we can see something about how we should interact with our relationship with Christ. First thing, Mary told them of Jesus and to listen to him. The same way how we have come unto Christ. They then obeyed him, even though they did not fully understand every single thing that was to come about. Same way for us also. And lastly, he did the actual change. They did what they were told. They obeyed. It's the same thing on for us. It is only God's spirit that can give change. Yes, he uses us and our work is useful. And he uses it for his divine purposes. But at the end of the day, the change comes from him. And so let us see from these servants demonstrating a work that is blessed by the divine. As we see God using them to perform this miracle. Let that be the same thing for our works as we work unto the Lord. That we see it not as in vain and not purposeless, but it has purpose and meaning. And the Lord will use these things for his glory. Let us now continue on into see how the master of the feast responds. So in verse 9, it says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. So something to point out here is the Bible doesn't tell us how the water became wine. 
It doesn't say that Jesus commanded it. It doesn't say he chanted it. It doesn't say that he stirred his finger inside of the water. It doesn't tell us how, but it tells us that he did. He had to get another lesson for us to learn and grasp and see how God many times will not tell us the hows. He will give us instructions. He will guide us, but sometimes he will not tell us the how. And praise God for that again. Praise God for that. And secondly, we see the master of the feast, which is not a normal term for us. Something similar to it, just to help grasp it, is I know in a wedding, we have like wedding planners. And when they're conducting the ceremonies, they're helping to make sure everything's organized and going flow and everybody's fed and everybody has something to drink. It's similar to what the master of the feast would have been doing. He would have been making sure that the, basically that the party was continuing on and that everybody was taken care of. And his response in verse 10, he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Yet again, we don't change. Normally, if you ever go into anybody's house, I know in my own, it starts off with the good food first and then you get the leftovers after. And so it's a common friend that is just giving to the beginning, get you full. And then afterwards comes with the secondaries. And so we see him responding that this wine must have been amazing. This is wine from God directly from the Lord Jesus turning this into wine. So he must have, and all the people at this party, must have had probably the most amazing wine possibly ever to be made. And so one day, Lord willing, when we get to heaven, maybe we want to ask him about it. How did it taste? So we see his response to this. So now that we have the story, we have the problem, the solution, and now the result. In verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is the first sign that John records of Jesus' ministry. This is the first sign that points us to who Christ is. And this is helpful because John talks about the purpose of this book. I want us to turn to John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31 to understand why does he mention this? Why does he put this sign forth? Why does he talk about this one instead of others? So John chapter 20. Verse 30 and 31. And so if you ever have questions about what is this book about, what is the purpose of sign? John tells us very directly. He's very clear and very straightforward of his purpose of writing this. So John 20, verse 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us very straightforward. These signs are recorded so that you may know who Christ is and that you may believe and have life in his name. So I put together a little statement to help us to think through the very first question that I asked. How do you know a sign is from God? How are you able to distinguish it? This little statement goes like this. A true sign from God is created by God to display the glory of God so that you may believe in God. 
I, I got you. I'll take care of you. <laughs> a true sign from God is created by God to display the glory of God so that you may believe in God. Amen. So let's go through that. It's created by God. So this one is the hardest one for us to know. Which, where does it come from? As we talked about, it could be a false sign, it could be a, or it could be a true sign. How do we distinguish that this is created by God? And the next two will help us to be able to point back to see that it is created by God to show the glory of God so that we may have faith in God. So, as he says in verse 11, he says, and manifested his glory. So I have this helpful quote from Piper. I know it's common that words like glory and the glory of God can become almost, I say, just routine for us. And we say them without actually thinking about what does the weight of that mean? What does that actually mean? And I thought Piper did a brilliant job of explaining it. And he says it is like this. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. I'll say that quote one more time. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. So in basic, the glory of God is when we see how God is different from us and he manifests that to us to see that in examples. As we know, the Psalms tell us that the heavens sing in praise of the glory of God. They shout the glory of God. Isaiah says, he saw the vision. They said, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled, not with his holiness, but with his glory. And then Romans 1 even tells us that all of creation testifies of his power and his majesty. And so we see through these different symbols, these signs, the glory of God, that they show us how God is, who God is, his character and his nature. And so when we think of the glory of God, think of something that is showing you this is how God is. This tells me who he is. And here in this passage, we can see three of those examples about Jesus. So as I said from the beginning, as we going through these passages and thinking of who Christ is, let the scriptures dictate to us who he is. So the first one. Back when he says, my hour has not yet come. That displays to us his glory that he is all-knowing. That shows us that Jesus is able to know the future before it even happens. And so we can trust in him. That everything will work out according to his plan because he already has it worked out. And we can put our faith in him and trust in his knowledge. The second one we see is of him being a transformer. Him being able to turn something, that which was not, into what it is not. And that may sound confusing the way I worded it. But he takes something and turns it into what it is not. And he has done that same exact thing with our lives. He has turned us from dead men and dead women into alive. And so we see this, that he is able to transform. And so we can have faith in him that he can turn us. Turn us from our sins, those sins that easily beset us, those sins that we struggle with, those sins that cling to us so tightly, that he can transform us, and we can have faith in him for that. And the third one we see in here is his abundant giving. 
As I talked about the amount of water that, he, that turned into wine, this massive amount of giving that he gave unto this wedding feast. That he could have just made a little drink just to show that he was powerful, that he could be able to do this. But he took almost 120 to 180 gallons of water and turned it into wine. We see his abundance in giving and how he lavishes it upon others. And we can know that same thing applies to us. And Jesus abundantly gives his mercy. He abundantly gives his grace. He abundantly cares for us. And so we see in this passage who Christ is, his glory being displayed. His holiness manifested. And we can put our trust and faith in him. And even the way that John narrates this event shows the glory of Christ. If you've noticed, not one name is mentioned except for Christ. Not the disciples, not the master of the feast, not even Mary. She's just called the mother of Jesus. Not one name is mentioned except for Jesus. John saw it fit that that was the only name that we really needed to know. And so everything is testifying to the glory of Christ in this passage. And let us see it. Let us look. Let us take time to linger over scripture, to take our time to study it, not to brush by and run through it so fast. And we see these things sitting right before our eyes. This passage is testifying and pointing to and showing Jesus as the solution, showing Jesus as the hero of the story and Jesus as our savior. And the last part of that phrase, so that you may believe. In verse 11, it tells us that the result of this was that the disciples believed in him after seeing this miracle. And often, I know many of us, we pray to God asking for signs. Lord, give me a sign. Lord, do a miracle and then I'll believe in you. Please show me something. And as we did earlier, I want to give that same warning. that Jesus tells us, he gives us a warning against seeking after signs. He says the evil and perverse generation seeks after a sign. And the only sign they will be given is the sign of Jonah. Which is him pointing ahead to his death, his resurrection, saying that that sign is sufficient enough. And if you want to see it in a person's life, we see it also in Peter. Peter saw these signs. Peter saw Jesus transfigured. Peter was able to witness all these things that John said that are not recorded. Peter saw all these things, and yet he still denied Christ. He still rebuked Christ. And so we see that the signs are not sufficient. They're not enough. Only Christ is enough. Only Christ can sustain our faith. Only Christ can give us faith. And it's only in him that these signs are not enough. And also, I probably can say, probably everyone in here has already seen a miracle, has already seen a sign. You probably ask, what am I talking about? What am I even referencing to? I promise you, it's probably just because you're not seeing it in the way that it actually is. If you've ever seen somebody become a believer, if you yourself are a believer, you have seen a miracle. The Bible talks about salvation not just becoming better people. It doesn't become better versions of ourselves. I was reminded of this from Meredith this week when we were in Bible study. We were studying Romans 8. It reminded me that Christ didn't come to just make us better. He came to make dead men live. He came to give us life. That is a sign. That is a miracle. 
And I know this personally, getting to also watch my brother Jay, that I've talked about before, watching from a man that we spent plenty of time doing all kinds of reckless things, loving this world, enjoying our sin. I would have never imagined we would be here today. I would have never imagined that we'd be following Christ. And I saw God save him. I saw a man that loved sin turn. I saw a man love Jesus and commit his life unto him, submit unto him, and follow him. Let us rejoice in that. Let us rejoice in that sign that God has shown us. Let us rejoice in the salvation of our brethren. Let us rejoice in our own salvation, that this is a miraculous event, that Christ would save us and turn us from death into life. As Romans 8 tells us, and you have to turn there. So I encourage you also to come to the Bible studies because we had a lot more, a lot better discussion on this. But it tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit that dwells in us and that it gives life to our mortal bodies. Just take a moment and think about how amazing that is. Jesus was raised from the dead. If any of us would see a dead man walk into this building, we would all be in shock. We would all be thrown aback. How amazing that is. Let us look at salvation in that same exact way. How amazing it is to see men and women being brought to life from death. Let us praise God for that miracle. Praise God for that sign. So, as the statement says, a true sign from God is created by God to display the glory of God so that you may believe in God. I have one or a couple final questions. Does this describe your life? Is your life a true sign of God? Is your life a true sign of God that manifests the glory of God so that others may have faith in him? If you have doubts, if you're struggling to answer that question, The call today is to repent, to turn. As we see that, Mary, as we see these problems, knowing that the only solution that we have is in Christ. The only solution to our sin problem, the only solution to our lives looking like the world is in Christ. So let us turn from our sins unto him. And so we're going to look at Matthew 13, verses 20 through to 23. Before we close out. So Matthew 13. Verses 22 through 23 read. And this is the parable of the sower. And this is the end of it. Talking about two of the different grounds that it fell upon. It says, as for what was sown among thorns. This is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. After what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And I brought that passage to light because a lot of times that cares of the world is, I'll do it tomorrow. Lord, I'll turn unto you tomorrow. Once I get everything in order, once my life is better, once my situation is comfortable, then I'll turn, Lord, once I have that all together. Or the deceitfulness of riches of, Lord, you know I'm busy. I have a job. I have to take care of a family. I have so much to do. There's so much other things that I must take care of first 
and then I will turn unto you. Brethren, the Bible warns us consistently. If you hear his word, turn today. Do not say tomorrow. Do not say another day. Do not say next year, but turn today. And so I pray that each and every single one of us may turn from whatever is besetting us, whatever is causing our lives to look like the world, so we may turn unto Christ and be true signs of God that manifest his glory so that others may believe in him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you how there is so much, Lord, that is just in this few verses. So much about you that we can learn of. So much of you that we can see. So, Lord, I pray for each and every single one of our hearts, mine included, Lord, that we may turn from our sins, that we may not put off repentance, Lord, that we may not delay in coming unto you. And may we run. May we run to you, Lord, allowing nothing to hold us back. May we come unto you so we may restore our relationship with you, Lord. Thank you that you so consistently forgive us, even though we do not deserve it at all. But your mercy and your grace abounds to us, and your mercy is new every single day, and we thank you for that. And so, Father, pray that your spirit may awaken our conscience, that you may give us the strength and the ability to turn unto you today. Thank you for your mercy, and thank you for your grace. Amen.